Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. This is actually kind of cool. My mom was nominated at 21 for an Oscar. And she found out in Heathrow Airport. And when I found out that I was nominated at 21 for Almost Famous, I was in Heathrow Airport. Talk about quantum enmeshment. It was so weird and my mom called me. She's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, you're nominated. And I was like, oh, my God. She's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm at Heathrow. She's like, what? That's crazy. I'm a massive Cameron Crowe fan. I believe that films should have some kind of feel goodness about them. And we don't see that as much these days, I don't think. For example, I, my wife and I love We Bought a Zoo. I love Jerry Maguire. I love Cameron Crowe's films. He's absolutely unafraid to be emotional, real, sentimental, nostalgic, all of these sort of like bad words, you know, sentimentality and nostalgia and all of these things. You're not supposed to be nostalgic and all of these things. Things being a little more cynical and people being a little more jaded and people being a little more just kind of rough around the edges or a little more beaten down by whatever it is. And it's proof, though, that people want to feel that feeling that you're supposed to get when you watch a film. Cry, laugh, feel some sense of inspiration. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and welcome back to Arjun's Almost Famous Turns 20. This is Episode 5. After exploring the movie's casting in Episode 1, then retracing Cameron Crowe's upbringing and the writing of the screenplay in episode two, detailing pre-production and rock school in episode three, and then recollecting the actual making of the film in episode four. We're going to examine the impact of the movie on its prodigious cast, their feelings about their director, and Cameron Crowe's own thoughts about how Almost Famous fits into his filmography. It was disappointing that it took a while to catch on, but it caught on to the point where people don't remember now that it actually got the shit kicked out of it by a movie from 1973, the weekend it opened. The Exorcist. Right. It was a re-release of The Exorcist. I'll never forget the first time I saw the movie. I was in a room with my agent and a couple friends and some other people that I worked with, and I walked outside of the screening room and... I was in such shock of what I had just seen in a good way that I didn't know if I had a good sense of if it was as good as I thought it was. So I remember looking to my friends and everybody going, it's really good, right? Am I crazy? Like, that's really good. I'm terrible at watching myself. So they were like, Kate, this movie is amazing. <laughs> like, this is an amazing movie. Like, this is crazy. And I remember saying, like, am I, I feel like I'm good in it, right? <laughs> they're like, yes, yes. Like your life's going to change. Yeah, like, it, it's like I knew it at the moment. I knew, like, I was a bit in shock. It was sort of like, 
they say when you die, your life flashes before your eyes, you know, and every, there's all these like little moments. Well, it kind of felt like that when you're come after seeing the movie, it was like everything that happened sort of was flashing before my eyes. I'm so myopic about it. It typically takes a while for me to register anything other than the ways in which I fell short. That's how I experience watching my own work. I, mean, I heard an actor speak recently about seeing themselves in movies. Somebody had asked them, did they see the, you know, the movie that was just coming out? And they say, no, I don't watch my movies. I find it unpleasant. And I do have a bit of that same reaction to it, but I also have a curiosity about the craft. So I want to see that the things that I was trying to make work, worked. I want to understand why the things that didn't work, didn't work. I want to understand more about how films are cut and why he wouldn't use certain things that seemed so like necessary to me. So all of it was information back 20 years ago to me. So seeing it was compulsory. It took me probably, I don't know, a couple of months, maybe seeing it two times or three times before I began to appropriately revere Cameron's work. And it, I was kind of focused on my own personal criticism up until then. I was working on another movie, I think, and I couldn't get to the premiere. I remember that. And I didn't get to see it until... I just bought a ticket and saw it in the theater. And what did you think when you saw it? Oh, I loved it. I was like, really? There are things where I was like, oh, wow, I did that? That's cool. <laughs> Especially that little posture you get when Billy walks in the house and you kind of greet him. You know, it's funny that you say that because that's one of the things that I actually realized, like, and this is why I think it's important, at least at the beginning. I mean, they always said Catherine Hepburn didn't watch her movies, but... You know, Catherine Hepburn aside, I think it is important to, at least at the beginning, like watch your stuff so you can see that was like a moment that happened sort of like Cameron likes to do a fair amount of takes. Like he so enjoys the process of, you know, directing actors and making movies that he just likes to do a lot of takes. And I remember we'd done a ton of takes at that point and I'd loosened up and I remember that thing happened. It was like we'd done it a bunch of times and then that kind of came out just sort of naturally and I was like getting to that place of looseness sooner rather than later with directors that don't do as many takes like you can kind of understand like you know what are the special moments that cut together well and it allows you to be analytical about your performances and you know I, I definitely like learned a lot because it's it's traumatic to watch yourself on a big screen. I mean any premiere is nerve-wracking of course but that was one of just carrying with me a ton of pride. I can't wait for people to see this. But, you know, certainly I'm watching and I'm critiquing myself and does the lip syncing look good and, you know, really wanting to sort of make sure that it's delivered as it should be. But also being able to enjoy it because, again, we knew that we were onto something and people were really moved by it. What was it like watching the movie now versus the premiere 20 years ago? What was really exciting about seeing it is how absolutely undated it is, very present. It feels as alive as it did the first time I saw it. And once again, I was reminded what a gift it was to play a character based on Cameron's mother, Alice, because I was just starting in my career to play mothers, and I was very conscientious about the roles that I chose that were mothers to male protagonists and to have the opportunity to not only play a character who was based on someone so dynamic and so complicated and so loved 
by her son. At the time, I had a five-year-old son who I adore with every breath I take. So to be able to play a really well, thoughtfully well-written mother role was a gift at that time of my career, but also to play a mother who quotes Goethe. I mean... Yeah, that doesn't come along every day. That never comes along. Are you kidding? But I have to say, when I watched Almost Famous for the first time with my son, who is now 25, he was, I think, 12, it brought up all the things that you want to talk to them about, but don't know how. And so it kind of was a whole list, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And you could talk about it from the character's point of view. So, you know, he had a great phrase at that time in his life. And it was, is this appropriate, mom? This seems highly inappropriate. (laughs) So we were watching and he goes, I think this is inappropriate, but I'd like to keep watching it. (laughs) It was like, excellent, because I want you to keep watching it. To see it all done with a real audience and to see how the audience was reacting to the final, you know, version of the film is so gratifying because all the work and all of the uh, meticulous detail and kind of mind-bending attention that was paid to all of that to make it authentic, it came alive and people really got it to sit there and see them laugh in the right spots and to really understand the depth of the humor, which if you've got the humor first and if they care enough to laugh with the characters, that means you've got them and they'll feel for the characters for the rest of the show. They'll cry for the characters too. So we felt so good because they were laughing and then they were crying and it worked. <laughs> it was worth all of the you know intensity. So I'm leaving the premiere in Toronto that I was not invited to. And I go down, of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman's there. He's in a stretch limousine, you know, which is hilarious. I'm taking a cab there. you know. So I see him, and I, I run, and I dive in the limousine, and I hug him, and I start like wrestling with him and like humping him, you know, like just messing around, like yeah. wrestling. You know? And I go, I love you, man. What's up? And, you know, and he, goes, he goes, Jimmy, 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 Jimmy. Well, I go, why? He goes, this is my mom over there. She was at the other side of the stretch. <laughs> The other side of the stretch limousine. <laughs> I go, oh, I'm so, so, so sorry. We uh, we had a fun relationship on the movie. Like we, I was like, what am I doing? He was with his mother. And I go, hi, nice to meet you. I just jumped out of the limousine. I'm like, taxi. Oh or, my I don't God. know how you say it in Toronto. Like, <laughs> and then I got in my cab and went to my hotel. <laughs> Patrick was just 17 in the year 2000 when Almost Famous premiered. It was an appropriately youthful film with which to launch a young actor's movie career. I had come in to do, I think, ADR, and then Cameron was like, you want to watch the movie? And I was like, yes. And that's what I remember thinking. I was like, holy shit, it goes by so fast. But I also remember that was a huge learning experience in terms of what we did on the day and what was chosen to be put into the final edit, how the camera felt on set, and what the camera sees in the film. You know, that's a... An important dynamic of film acting is perceiving what it is the lens is actually going to show the audience. And so it was like technical stuff like that. It was emotional stuff like seeing all the relationships and all of that again. And what did you think when you first saw it all put together? (laughs) I remember being floored because I was like, that's it. 
it's seven months of my life condensed into 90 minutes, you know, so there's so much left out. Like there's so much that I remember and there were entire sequences, you know, there's a Kyle Glass came in and did a whole radio sequence that was brilliant with the band and he plays this amazing like stoner DJ character. There was a lot of stuff in there and it was brilliant and it was just cut out of the movie. And then um, the whole character of the sister's boyfriend was cut out of the movie and that whole thing. So what was it like for you back in Salt Lake City after the movie came out? You know, when I would come out here, I would get recognized a lot. And when I went on the press tour and everything, you know, I was treated a certain way. And then I would go back to Salt Lake City and nobody would know who I was, which I actually really enjoyed at that point. You know, I was excited about a lot of people knowing who I was, you know, like being famous. But I also really appreciated like my family and my friend group and my lifestyle and that sort of thing. And I didn't I knew I didn't want that to change too much. It took Salt Lake City a little while to like come around and start like picking me out of the crowd at Blockbuster Video or whatever, you know, like, hey, are you the kid from Almost Famous? And I remember at first it made me uncomfortable and I would say, no, no, it's not me. No, no. I just look like him. My friend even made me a shirt that said, no, I just look like him. When you saw the poster, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to go with this movie on how you're going to advertise it. Yeah. But what was it like when you saw that? I mean, beyond exciting. Again, it's like a mix between excitement and shock. You're sort of like, what does it mean? You know, I don't know. I guess it's a good thing that for me, there's always a level of disbelief between anything I see outside of the experience that I'm having. So my experience on Almost Famous is very different than my experience watching Almost Famous or seeing the poster. That feels way more surreal than what my experiences were shooting in. So it just felt surreal. I think the most surreal was the Times Square because it was in Times Square and it was just like, here I was 20 years old and it's not, it wasn't even just like, you know, a body and a face, you know, and like me and someone, it was just like my big face (laughs) with glasses. It was like, wow, I mean, it was fucking wild and incredibly exciting. And I think that whole time was such a whirlwind of activity. It was such a fun time. The, the industry was so much more fun then as well than it is now, I think. We were wild. We were having so much fun, you know, and especially a movie like that. We were traveling the world. You had to go meet people. We would go sit. We traveled to different places in the country and did radio shows. And, you know, it was much more connective experience. We went to, you know, the festivals it was just old school. It just felt, it was just really great. When you're in Times Square and there's marketing posters of you like this, what was your mom saying to you, given the fact that this is certainly a level jump? I mean, I think that my parents were just so excited. My mom always says she doesn't like to use the word proud because it feels somehow like she's responsible for what that is. So it's like a weird word for Leave her. Leave it to your mom to think about that. I think there was a level of excitement, nervousness. I think there was definitely fear going into that. I was so young and sure in her own mind, it was like, you know, she just wanted it to be good and wanted, I think like anything, I think, especially when you have the experience, all my parents really want is to make sure that I'm feeling good about my life, happy in my life. So they could kind of separate the sort of the probably most likely rise to stardom in that moment. They kind of knew it was coming, I think. 
but they were just a little bit more concerned about whether I was grounded and happy. The biggest box office obstacle for Almost Famous was that on its opening weekend, there was a re-release of The Exorcist, the usually popular horror classic that first premiered in 1973. This time, the slogan was, The Version You've Never Seen, and the new cut did an incredible $8.1 million in just 664 theaters. That took up a lot of attention. Almost Famous grossed a modest $2.3 million that first weekend, but it was a case where numbers simply cannot and do not tell the whole story. I remember getting the phone call where it's like, well, it's a flop. (laughs) But it didn't feel like a flop because the movie was resonating with everybody that saw it. It's like if you know something's not working and people are not coming, it's a little different from not enough people are seeing it yet. I think everybody had like confidence that if you see it, you might feel something. But the movies that last are the ones that touch people. And that's all they remember over time. And the movies that touch people, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be Bafo box office. It's true. It's true. But ultimately, the life it'll have won't be part of a box office report. It'll be a movie you either watch or don't. Right. If somebody had said to you that people be clamoring to celebrate the 20th anniversary of this movie, you would have said, yeah, right. I would have said, yeah, right. (laughs) How significant was it for you in your career, do you think? I mean, people forget that it was not a gigantic hit. It wasn't a hit. It didn't make money. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I remember feeling disappointed at the reaction. I I was looking for that exact thing. Is like, so how is this going to shake things up? But when it had that response, you need like one or two things to happen in order to have a major shift in your immediate opportunities. You have to win all sorts of awards or your movie has to make a ton of money. That's it. It doesn't matter if you're good in something good. That's not going to create a level jump. And what happened with this movie is it grew in people over time. It's so much more popular with young people now than I remember experiencing it all at the time. I mean, people typically mistake me for Russell's grandfather, but that's okay. I'm still a part of the family. (laughs) But it's true. There are young people who have such adoration and affection for the film because it's grown and the more you watch it the more you invest in Cameron's life and his openness and displaying that life and the romance that he tells this rock and roll story it becomes a reliable piece of entertainment for you to saddle up to it didn't do well I think almost famous was Cameron as a real reflective grown-up as a director, meaning like, you know, his other singles and saying all those, like they had this sort of real youthful as Cameron is so youthful. And then you had Jerry Maguire, which was like his first big kind of adult, like, okay, I'm working with Tom Cruise and it's going to be, you know, and it was fucking amazing. But then Almost Famous was like, I'm a great filmmaker and I'm making my story. And he did it and he nailed it, you know? And I, I think we all knew it when we were making it too. You know, I think we all carried that weight with him of this is Cameron's story we have to get there for him and it was so much fun it was just so fun I wonder how it would have been different if Kate won the Oscar she'd won all the critics awards had you written out a speech no no but it was funny because everybody kept telling me I was going to win and deep down I didn't think I was going to win And then I kept saying, everybody stop telling me this. It was almost like being in a haze a little bit. 
at that time for me. And Marsha Gay Harden won for Pollock. And it happened so fast. I remember sitting there and Nicolas Cage came up on the thing and it was like, for Best Supporting Actress. And I was like, oh, shit. That's, how did that? I just sat down. <laughs> and I. it's almost like I didn't even get time to settle enough to get nervous. And then I lost. I remember my whole family was there and I was like, okay. And my dad's like, okay, okay. We were like, all right, now we move on. And I guess I'm a great believer that everything happens the way it's just supposed to happen. So then it was, the whole thing was over. But I also remember being really, really tired. And I remember going home, I lost. My dad looked at me. He gave me a great moment of encouragement. And I went back, not home, but to the hotel with my husband at the time. And we went to the governor's ball. And I was like, you know what? I just want to go to bed. And we got champagne and strawberries. And I sat in bed. And I must have slept for like a week. I mean, I was just, I hadn't realized what a whirlwind it was until it was over. I was saying to a director earlier today, the movie industry is just a heartbreaking industry. Every aspect of making a movie as an actor or someone who's involved in the process is heartbreaking. Whether it's a great experience or the shittiest experience on the planet, there's always going to be a heartbreak, right? You're always going to end up thinking to yourself, oh, it's heartbreaking that, you know, I put so much into it and then I saw it and it's so bad and I'm heartbroken <laughs> or I really wanted to work with this actor or this actress and they just broke my heart because they were a pain in the ass or oh my god every aspect of this movie was so incredible everything and then one day it's just over with all due respect to your previous work, did this, in your mind, represent a level jump to you in terms of what you were able to bring to the screen or to audiences? Well, certainly the character. I mean, for me, it's always about the part. And uh, if you meet the part at the right time in your life and the movie works, you're good to go. It's just a question of timing. And that was great timing for me. That part came to me at the right time for me, and the movie worked. Can you talk for a moment about... Cameron Crowe and you know what he meant to you and also what's it like to start off like that I yeah mean, I was in Salt Lake City riding BMX bikes skateboarding listening to Chumbawamba or whatever the hell and then all of a sudden I was like a legitimate professional actor I, like I had to be that now and I loved it you know it's what I'd wanted to do I'd almost planned on it so it was like that was now a reality and the fact that Cameron made such an incredible film and that I was such a big part of it afforded me the opportunity to work on a lot of great stuff over the next few years while I stayed in Salt Lake City. So had I taken a uh, maybe a more traditional actor's approach, I would have had to move here to L.A. earlier and really grind out parts and grind out auditions and things like that. But that was not the case for me. So I just was all of a sudden elevated to this level just because Cameron, you know, picked me out of the crowd and uh, it's an incredible experience that like almost like Philip's character saying like you came along for the death rattle of rock and roll. Philip said to me, he's like, you know, the digital age is coming and actors like you who don't have any credits, you know, you just get to walk in here and do this sort of thing. He's like, I think this industry is in its fading light. I was like, no, no. <laughs> it's like, it's my lifelong dream. 
But it truly was this perfect sort of period of time in my life and the character matching up and then getting to experience Cameron really doing his thing and loving what he's doing and putting that on film and everybody around him committing as much as they can, as much heart and soul and skill as they can. I'm very fortunate. I mean, it changed my life. I think from all of the films that I worked on with him, which is most of his films, Almost Famous for me is the favorite, just because it's such a rare animal that manages to describe sort of an innocence in the era of that time where the music was real. It wasn't digitized, it wasn't you know, flaked and formed. It was real people playing real f instruments and writing real songs and on their own without teams of experts. You know, it was just very personal time in music. I think it's just a rare occasion where a movie can describe something like that that sort of informs our culture today of what it's sort of missing <laughs> in a lot of ways. Almost Famous is super special to me because it portrayed a story for Cameron, his own story about him and his family and growing up and, you know, getting your his heart broke and all the stuff that happens when you're 15 and 16. And as well as the fact that it told a story for me as a rock person, you know, being out in the electrified sanctuary of the big rock stage and what it means to people and, you know, how it sort of saves people. For William Miller in the story, he was home when he was with the music people, doing the music, going on the road with the musicians. It became a, a home for him. And so I think it just tells a lot of cool stories. It's, it's a good analogy for us all sort of growing up and loving something so much, loving music so much, and having music in your life mean so much. Why do you think we're still talking about Almost Famous 20 years afterwards? Man, that's a great question. Well, you said something before about bridging the gap between childhood and adulthood. Every generation goes through that. Not every generation goes through what they went through in Jerry Maguire. He does this with adolescence and does it in a grand fashion and does it with cinematic qualities that hold up to the test of time. There's the unbelievable soundtrack. There's the writing, the sense of humor, the performances from Phil and Fran and Patrick and Kate and Jason. I mean, it's, there's just spectacular performances in there. And something that high quality about adolescence and the transition to adolescence, it'll make you reverential for it as you get old, and it'll make you feel like you're coming into your adulthood at the moment you can relate to it. So I think there's probably something in what point of time he's studying in this person's life that gives it its sustained life. I will say this, that it's such a joy that it is as lasting culturally for Cameron, because it's a story about him, because his particular brand of creativity and kindness and generosity and reverence for artistic beauty 
is singular. And I'm so glad that he has this for him. Why do you think we're talking about Owen's Famous 20 years later? It was just magic in a bottle, and it was just something that rarely happens. It's, uh, you know, Haley's Comet. You have to appreciate it every time it comes around, because it's rare. And we were all kind of no-names, you know, for the most part. And it was like a lot of people's first thing, so it was really raw, it was innocent, and it had that hunger that you want from actors, and you can see that we all want this to work. You know, we all want this to be great, like top to bottom. I'm not talking even just the actors, the crew too. We all wanted this to work and we loved each other and we celebrated everyone's birthday and hugged and we were family. And it was just the greatest. And we, I think that's why the movie worked and stuck around and hung around is because we all worked so hard to make it work and we all really put all of our energy into it. And, you know, with a great captain like Cameron Crowe, that ship's going to sail. There's an innocence to this movie that I think people loved so much and crave. I think it's why when you look back, I always think about that with music, you know, you look back at the music and you're sort of like, oh, there's a level of innocence to this. Even though it was riddled with sex, drugs and rock and roll, it was still something kind of innocent about it. It's still something people mention to me, you know, as one of their favorite movies. And I think it's also one of those movies that holds up now when you see it. I think it really, you know, holds up and it's kind of gotten even more interesting, you know, when you watch it again. So at the end of the day, why do you think I'm here? Why do you think we're still talking about Elmas Famous 20 years later? That's a really good question. I'll tell you a part of that is because we don't really see films like that anymore, sadly. It's proof, though, that people want to feel that feeling that you're supposed to get when you watch a film. Cry, laugh, feel some sense of inspiration right. is really the purpose of movies. I, you know, Feel some emotion, feel some sense of inspiration, have some experience of sort of self-reflection in some way. There being a tender moment in a film and you sort of reach over and you grab your partner's hand, you're, you walk out feeling inspired and some kind of sense of hope or something. I mean, I don't think these things are so bad and I don't think Cameron thinks they are either. It was really, really important to make it about the people. Therefore, you become so invested in them. They feel so rich and real and vulnerable, and they go through all the roller coaster of all the emotions. And so there's a believability to it. And when you can invest in characters, you root for them. And when they come out on top, you feel their victory a little bit. People want that, I think, despite it seeming otherwise. I think people want that. They want to feel good when they go to the movies. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got 
you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I am not sweet, and you should know that about me. I am. I'm the enemy. Look, you should be happy for me. You don't know what he says to me in private. Maybe it is love, as much as it can be for somebody- Who sold you to Humble Pie for 50 bucks and a case of beer? I was there. I was there. I mean, Cameron is truly responsible for my career sort of taking the- shape and position that it ended up taking. He really believed in me and went with it. I have so much gratitude for what he's enabled me to do in my career by giving me that chance. And at the same time, I was falling in love and getting married. So as my career was shooting up, my love life was very quite grounded, even though Chris and our life was very bohemian and a little wild. And But like I was very much domestic at that time. You know, I became an, a young mom. So right after that, I was married, had a kid. So it was funny because when most people would have really gone off into their life and been like, okay, it's all about making movies. It's all about my career. It's all about this. I actually just made a different choice. Not no good nor bad. Just my choice was to start a family. And so the two biggest things in my life happened within like a three-year period. And so that time in my life was extraordinary because it was special. It was creative. It was energetic. It was fiery. It was emotional for everybody. It was important. It was probably Cameron's most important piece of work in terms of his life and his own life experience and the relationships that were formed on that film and what it did for everyone's career and how we look back on it. I mean, it set a tone that to me is like, all right, reset. Let's go back to that. Obviously, we never go back, but it's a great 
benchmark. The qualities. Yes. For looking at, I waited for that part. Cameron waited to make that movie the right way. He spent a lot of people's money (laughs) and a lot of extra time making sure that that movie was something special. And now 20 years later, we're celebrating a movie that still holds up that my son, my 16-year-old son, loves. So, you know, it's, it says a lot. So Gail yesterday said, look, I'm prejudiced about Almost Famous. I said, but let me say something to you. Kate Hudson has had an amazing career. She still has a huge career ahead of her. But I don't think she's ever done a role that captured so many elements of who Kate Hudson as an actress is and can be than Almost Famous. I know exactly what you're saying, and she's right. And I think that, like any actor, there are certain roles that come around and along and certain people who believe in you enough to know that your capacity as an actor is wide. And I think Penny Lane gave me all of those opportunities very young. I think as an actor going forward, almost famous for me was a magical moment. My mom always says that after that day, then she became Kate Hudson's mom. But no, I think I feel very comfortable in my identity. At the same time, I am my mother's daughter. And it makes sense that people want to relate to those things similarly. It's a very tight connection, a close connection. Sometimes the celebrity becomes quite large. And that time has moved on. And so you either embrace it or you fight it. And I've embraced it. What I'm excited about is that I think there's a whole new wave of exciting, creative, like getting back on the bus. You know, there's something about Almost Famous that every time we all see each other, it's special. More so than what the movie meant to people is what it also meant to us. It's almost like being a part of a secret club. A special, special time. I don't think you can ever really... I mean, you can get back on the bus metaphorically, but you can't ever go back. There was this one moment when I'm on the phone, I'm saying, I love you and I miss you. And Cameron went into a close-up and my chin started to as it does when I get upset, my chin started to wrinkle and quiver and my mouth started going pruney. And Pedro was sitting next to me on the sofa and he turned to me and he said, stop it, mom. (laughs) And I said, that's not me, that's her. I know I do the same thing, but it was like this perfect moment of, you know, And he needed it too. And he did. I mean, that was a gift to him. It was a gift. I think with Elaine, I know as a mother... I used to be able to sleep through anything until I met my son and started being very concerned whether he was still breathing. The minute you start listening from one room to the next to hear if they're still breathing, you never sleep through the night again. It's just, it's one of the rules of the job and that you start structuring your life in such a way to keep them alive and then to let them live their lives. So you start structuring your life in that way. And I think that as a single mother, Elaine had to be everything at all times. And that is a Herculean task. 
and that joy and happiness get sublimated and suppressed. So I don't think, I never thought of her as a repressed or suppressed woman. I just thought she was doing a great job multitasking. There's three things for me. There's a screenplay and a well-written screenplay. I mean, I certainly have done a lot of projects with horrible screenplays for many, many reasons. But for me, if the screenplay reads like a piece of literature, then three quarters of the work is done for the possibility of it being a great film. And that was true of Almost Famous. The second thing is the process and the experience can be enough, and it certainly was. It was a deeply satisfying company experience. It just was firing on all cylinders. Everybody was at the top of their game, and it was a really exciting experience. Then you just throw the dice, because for me, it's not an actor's medium, it's not a director's medium, it's an editor's medium. Film is about knowing how you're going to edit it. And we actors are serving the edit. We're not even serving the director or the character as much as we're serving the editing of that story in the end. So it all depends on what you've got in the can, we used to say, or what you don't and what ends up happening in an editing room. So you can never really predict it, but I usually can from a screenplay because I enter the experience dramaturgically and I'd like to know where I fit in the larger picture. So it's never just about my character or my experience. It's about how it fits into something larger. I'm just wondering if you could just speak to the real attachment between William and Elaine in the movie and how that survives despite the fact of all the circumstances of the movie. Wow. Well, I think the inner story of Almost Famous is a lot about William and Elaine and there's a hurt in that family and I think the kid wants to fix things and if he can make his mother happy or feel like he's achieved something to kind of help mend the family which is below the surface of Almost Famous that's really the other victory that he's going for that's why he brings his sister home. That's why he brings his sister home, and it's why he wants to teach his mother a teacher that he can do that and not become part of the teenage wasteland, that he actually can bring home a golden fleece to help that family. And that's what I see when I see Almost Famous. So in a way, Elaine becomes a student. Totally, Elaine becomes a student. And that's the scene that didn't make it into the movie, which they try and teach Elaine about the greatness of Stairway to Heaven, which is really the greatness of Frances McDormand, who I believe went through two days of sitting there being filmed, listening to Stairway to Heaven, giving you every little kind of twitch and twinkle for that sequence. But it's like you're very right on the money when you say it's about teaching Elaine, the great teacher, about life, family, and music because the original ending of the movie is she plays a song for the kids so he's able to teach her that along with Goethe and Edgar Casey and all the other people she named checks you know there is a philosopher named Neil Young there's a philosopher named David Bowie there's a philosopher named Joni Mitchell who has equal weight 
He bared his soul and he put his family relationships into the story as well, which was problematic. And, you know, it was always, there were issues in everyone's family that he kind of, he bared all a little bit in that story, which I thought was brave and good for the family. It actually brought the family together after the movie came out, which was, you know, a wonderful thing to have happen. So many things come full circle in the whole world of Almost Famous. It is the most personal thing that I've written. And what I hear about Almost Famous now is I showed it to my kids and they dug it. That's why I'm here. Sophie Miller turned 12 years old. I said, you are now ready. And we watched that night and she said every day since it changed her life. Why do you think it is? I think because you created the perfect port of entry. You made the world accessible on an emotional level. I know you studied journalism and in Jerry Maguire, you traced the pedigree of what it really is to be a sports agent and to be in that world and the athlete and their agent relationship and all that stuff. This was a different thing. The aperture is so wide because you bring us in. And so we, I mean, literally that movie was like a tsunami that washed over my daughter. It just was. That's why she, for her 15th birthday, she came to me and she said, I want to go to Coachella. And I said, yeah, it's the almost famous thing. She goes, you showed it to me. Wow. Wow. I'm super proud of that. I hope that was a good answer. I didn't... It was I, fantastic. Are you kidding me? I'm going to steal it. <laughs> when I got the idea for a series called and about origins, I knew I couldn't make it all about only my personal favorites, no matter how tempted I was to do that. But I also knew that I'd hate myself in the morning and that it'd be pointless if I failed to include some of the movies, songs, television shows, or whatever, that I just plain loved. Works that meant the world to me. I'm sure you have a few, or many films, that fit that description and occupy a hallowed spot. For me, Almost Famous occupies that special place. So special that it would have been painful for me to leave it out. And my affection isn't purely personal. I really believe it's a film of genuine artistry and achievement. The film's impact on its audience the large place it holds in the memories and affections of many who saw and cherished it, and who see it again whenever the opportunity arises, cannot be measured with decimal points and dollar signs. There's a magic to the movie. I'm sorry if that sounds trite, but there you have it. In its way, Almost Famous is regarded as warmly by moviegoers of a certain age as Casablanca or The Wizard of Oz are by other film-going generations. Thank you for joining us here at Origins with me, Jim Miller. If you have any comments, I'd love to hear them at james at jamesandrewmiller.com or you can hit me up on Twitter at Jim Miller. Stay tuned for our next chapter of Origins. I'm Jim Miller. Onward. This has been a production of Cadence 13, executive produced by me, Jim Miller, and my valued colleague, Chris Corcoran, who kicks ass running all content for Cadence. I do the writing and reporting for Origins, but the actual podcast is produced, edited, and mastered by my brother-in-arms, Chris Basil, a legend. Our producer and engineer is Terrence Malangone, who always makes the studio feel like home. And I also want to send a shout out to our marketing slash PR team, Josephina Francis, Hilary Schuff, and Kurt Courtney, along with Lizzie Denahan and the rest of the sales team. Corny as it may sound, I'm damn lucky to have all these people on Team Origins. 
calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 